Hello and welcome to Canucks Talk. I'm Thomas Drance, not Jamie Dodd. I'll be flying solo today, but we've got a loaded show for you. Tons of guests. It'll be fun. It's a, it's a Drance and Friends edition of Canucks Talk. Canucks Talk, of course, is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at dleamc.com. And of course, I'm coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech is Canada's favorite orthotics provider, powered by thousands, thousands of five-star Google reviews. Sore feet? What are you waiting for? Of course, if you want to text into the show, if you want to be involved in the conversation, 650-650, that's the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street. Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver. Visit them online at DunbarLumber.com. All right, we're going to open up the whiteboard and get into what's up around your Vancouver Canucks today, Monday, January 22nd. All right, now, fellas, hey, let's focus up, huh? As we walk into this locker room and look up at the whiteboard, we'll begin with the headlines. Over the weekend, the Vancouver Canucks smashed the Toronto Maple Leafs in a thrilling back-and-forth game at Rogers Arena. Honestly, this felt like a moment for the Vancouver Canucks. This was just a great show at Rogers Arena. Canucks come out like gangbusters. Niels Hoaglander scores a couple beauties. The second wrist shot in particular, an absolutely stunning goal. Canucks build a 3-0 lead and look like they're pushing the Maple Leafs around. Honestly, if you hadn't gotten a response from the Maple Leafs, it would have been one of those like fold-up-your-tent games for a club that had come into the game having recently lost four in a row and whose head coach is very much on the hot, hot seat in that market. The Leafs, however... Clearly haven't quit on the guy because they responded, took over. They counterpunched in the second. And by the way, that was just good for the entertainment value. You know, that atmosphere where you've got dueling chants and just a ton of Leafs fans in the building. It was better. It was a better product because the game had peaks and valleys for both sides. If you went to that game as a Canucks fan, you had moments of sheer joy, right? And... You had moments where whatever Leafs fan was sitting beside you, maybe he's your buddy, had the upper hand and was beaking you as the Leafs took over the game. And they did in the second period. And then you get to the the third and the Canucks spam back net goals, uh, sorry, backdoor tap-in goals on the power play. Their best players win the game five on four. And a lot of those power plays were drawn, both of them against the Max Domi line, by the way, in part because Vancouver's depth lines the contributions of your Niels Hoaglander and Connor Garland tier guys, in contrast with the last decade of hockey, in which we've seen the Vancouver Canucks regularly beat the Maple Leafs on home ice, but we haven't seen them ice a better team. Honestly, it's been like since 2016, since since you could say unequivocally the Canucks iced a better team and played like it. They did on Saturday. It felt different as everything around this team has. Just a great night. And you know, I almost came away from it thinking about how, you know, it's not just that the Canucks are at the top of the league by total points, third by point percentage. They're also putting on these fantastic performances, scoring these highlight reel goals, just playing thrilling hockey on a consistent basis at this point, right? It, it, like, 
again, it wasn't that they beat the Leafs. It was how they swarmed them. It was that even when Hironic Hughes, Besser, Miller, Pedersen weren't on the ice, this Canucks team has several guys, whether it's Dakota Joshua or Garland or, or Hoaglander. Tyler Myers, just like making the Leafs look like Lilliputians, right? There's all these players who can bring you out of your seat even when the stars take a breather, right? And and it had me sort of thinking about the trajectory of this club, the surprise that has been this season, and really thinking about how, you know, in this hockey town, right, winning matters most, of course. The idea of, of finally seeing this franchise win a Stanley Cup matters most, of course. But the teams that have really captured the imagination of hockey fans in this city have also played aesthetically pleasing hockey have also produced some of the best highlights been the most exciting players of their era at least for a stretch in their peak you know this is a city that has seen Pavel Bure right this is a city that celebrated the West Coast Express during the dead puck era right the the, the endless cycle game of the Sedine Twins at the moment especially over the last few weeks I think the show that this Canucks team is putting on is of a kind with that, like a natural air to that. Right now, the Canucks are playing must-watch hockey, and I don't think that should be ignored as we go through the headlines around this team. Other piece of news, we could cover this off in lineups, but I, I think it's worth putting at the top here. Carson Soucy, Canucks defenseman, out a while, five to six weeks per Rick Tockett today, uh, as reported by Brendan Batchelor, who will be our guest in the next segment. It's Susie's second long-term injury or medium-term injury of the year, and you hate to see that happen to anybody. Uh, in Susie's case, you know, he's been playing really good hockey. Subtly, he's been a great find for this team when he's been in the lineup over the course of the season. I think his impact actually has been felt most since he returned from that latest injury. So he got hurt. The Canucks went out and got Zadorov. And that sort of helped them hold the fort. Noah Juleson's played well enough that, uh, you know, I, I don't think Susie's absence was hurting the club too much. But when they were able to get Susie back and stacked their six first-choice defensemen together, right? And you had this Hughes-Ronick, Zadorov, Myers, Susie Cole, sometimes Juleson group going, this team's defensive results hit a totally different level. Like, if you go look at this team's underlying performance at even strength since Susie returned, they're producing elite defensive results. And actually, their defensive results in terms of what they're surrendering are better than their results in terms of the goals against, right? Like, uh, this team hasn't been leaning on goaltending. They've just surrendered nothing. Like, top, uh, bottom 10 in the league in terms of the rate at which opponents are getting shots against, um, you know, only two teams are permitting expected goals at a fewer at a lower clip. Only four or five are permitting scoring chances against at a fewer clip. Like, as this team has kind of hit another level over the course of this month, I think we've talked a lot about it being because of the Canucks big line, that Miller, Pedersen, Besser line, and that's been part of it. But the rate at which Vancouver is generating scoring chances is like up a little bit where their effectiveness as a team is really spiked has been in the def on the defensive side. It's been what they're permitting. And, you know, losing Susie, I I'm curious to see 
as the sample expands, as we as we watch this team play over the next five to six weeks, what it looks like. I'm I'm very curious to see if in sort of going back to life without your first choice top six, if we see this team manage to sustain this sterling, like absolute top of the league defensive level that they've hit over the course of the past three weeks. So uh, curious to watch that. Uh, We'll get into a little bit more in the lineup notes because it looks like the Canucks are also unleashing a bit of an experiment on the back end in addressing Susie's absence. All right, let's go to the broadsheet portion. We're going to start here with some audio from 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Dom Dom Shermetti, our our producer, also produces that. I don't know if you guys knew that. Dom, have you told the people this yet? Come again? Well, have you told the people that you have 32 thought podcasts that you produce? <laughs> yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's listen to Friedman discussing the overall posture of the Vancouver Canucks with seven weeks to go till the trade deadline. I, I think they're all in. I don't think, like again, they haven't told me this. I've heard this from other teams. I don't think they want to trade those young guys like the Vlanders and the letter of Mackey's like, those are not the guys they want to trade. Now, if you're trading for a good player with term, that's when you start getting into those kinds of conversations. But I've heard those are not the guys they want to trade. Um, uh, especially for a rental. They're not doing that. Um, you know, they're the, now I should say some, you never know what happens when a whole bunch of teams get involved but I think they're willing to do the first rounder. I don't have any sense as we tape this podcast late Sunday night, early Monday morning, that there is willingness to do some of their top prospects. So the Vancouver Canucks, all in, but unwilling, or not unwilling, but certainly deeply reluctant to trade Valander and LeCaramacchi, both of whom would qualify as Vancouver's you know, best trade chips by a mile, by a mile, right? Uh, as Jason Bukula has said on this show, for example, the the first round of this particular NHL draft, especially where the Canucks are likely to be picking, it's not like it was last year where teams were looking at late firsts as having significant value. Uh, you know, this year, the, the balance is a little different. You're not getting an Andrew Crystal quality prospect, you know, in the 30s. You're you're not getting those types of guys. A Matthew Wood at 19. Um, it, it's just a different world for NHL teams. If you're going to be all in, you know, it, it is going to be an interesting dynamic to track here in terms of the price this club is willing to pay. By the way, over the course of the podcast, too, Friedman also mentioned uh, talking about all the expirings that the Canucks are, are pretty confident that they can keep some of the guys um, that they want to keep because this team has a lot of expiring deals, right? Uh, Very few defensemen still signed a ton of crucial depth forwards, whether it's Lafferty, Bluger, or Dakota Joshua, um, you know, who, who will be in high demand given their production this season should they hit the open market. I think the LeCaramacchi, Volander thing is a really interesting thing to discuss, especially because... I've got a new column up at The Athletic. It matches something Jamie and I have been tossing around here for, for months now. Um, the title of that article is effectively four reasons why the Vancouver Canucks should be all in. Like, should be all in. And, you know, in thinking about it over the weekend and in considering that column, you know, the big question, it seems to me, like the big thing 
that this team needs to be asking itself over the weeks ahead because I, I think they're checking some boxes in terms of playing like a contender, right? I, I think the top of the league is unusually wide open, as I've said. But I think where the case for buying becomes more potent, you know, becomes more urgent is when you get to how this club is positioned, right? This is the question. This is the big question to ask. Will this core group, okay, have better opportunities to win available to it on its current timeline than the one ahead of it right now? That's the question. That's the big lingering question that this Canucks team has to be obsessed with over the next few weeks, right? Because if the answer to that question is honestly, maybe not. They should be extremely motivated buyers ahead of the deadline. Like, nothing should be off the table in seeking to upgrade this club. And, you know, I think if you're trying to understand that, you know, we look at this team and because their success is so fresh and so new, it's tempting to view it as like the start of a multi-year run with a relatively long horizon. And, you know, we hope that's true, right? I I certainly thought that this team didn't have this level of short-term upside coming into the season. I'm flabbergasted. By what we've seen occur. But we have to grapple with the reality we find 46 games into the season, which is not just that this team's played astonishingly well, but that their form has actually spiked over the course of the past few weeks to the point where they're actually playing contender-level hockey over the course of the past month here, right? But this isn't a run like the New Jersey Devils last year that's being driven by a bunch of, you know, precocious young guys in their early 20s, right? In fact, this team's about league average in terms of the average age of the roster, right? Its best players are 24-25. They're smack dab in the middle of their statistical primes. Or, or you know, JT Miller's 30, Brock Besser's in his late 20s, or, or they're, you know, I don't want to say like past it. I, I'm not trying to suggest anything like that. Obviously, these guys are performing at an exceptional level but this you know teams peak players peak a lot earlier than we think and the Canucks do have some players who are you know beyond what aging curves would suggest are are primarily or or most likely to be um, the peak value for some of these players seasons there's also the fact that this club doesn't have a lot of long-term cost cost certainty built into its core group right like there's going to be a rotating conveyor there's going to be a conveyor belt effectively of of expiring star players who get significant raises and this team's going to need to find ways to maintain the level of depth around them if they hope to be as good as this next year the year after that the year after that you got Pedersen and Philip Ronix deals expiring after the season Besser the year after Thatcher Demko the year after that and then Hughes that's like a three-year window where you know, four, including this season, where the, you know, you're going to have Pedersen and, and Hironic probably go from something like 12 million to 18 or 20, right? And then you're going to have Besser go from 6.6 to maybe eight, especially with the cap going up. Then Thatcher Demko, should he maintain this form, going to be one of the highest paid goalies in the league. And then Quinn Hughes, I mean, there's no amount that that guy's not worth. So, As the Canucks' fortunes rise, right, so too will the cap commitments of their best players. When you look at the age 
that this team's at, like when you look at sort of how they're positioned in terms of the age of their core pieces and the lack of cost certainty and the, the volume of expiring contracts and the Oliver Ekman Larson buyout, like, is this an opportunity the Canucks can afford to miss? Um, I would say no. Like, I would say no. I, I, I honestly think, and a lot of sort of what we were talking about in the wake of, for example, the heroic trade last year was like the lack of long-term upside, pushing too many chips into one season. Well, guess what? That analysis is off the table because this team has hit a level we didn't think they would. And they have to chase it. Like, they have to. I, I honestly don't know that anything can be off the table. And we'll get into some options because I, I do think what Friedman mentioned there in terms of rentals versus long-term fits is an interesting one. There's certainly opportunity to use the deadline to buy to strengthen this club over the course of that sort of three- or four-year window we're talking about as opposed to just going all-in now with some of the risks that come with that. All right, that's the broadsheet. Let's go to lineup notes. Big changes on the back end at Canucks morning skate ahead of the game against the Chicago Blackhawks. Here's how the Canucks defense pairs will line up with Carson Soucy out. Quinn Hughes with Tyler Myers. Nikita Zadorov with Philip Hronik. Ian Cole, Noah Juleson, Mark Friedman back up from Abbotsford following a brief conditioning loan is the extra today. So, you know, quick reaction to this, I think it's a good time to experiment. You know, as I've been working through what deadline coverage is going to look like at The Athletic, thinking about how to talk about it here, one thing that I sort of keep coming back to is this idea that, you know, one of the reasons I think the Philip Peronic fit has been so much better hockey-wise than I ever imagined was... The idea that Quinn Hughes should be paired with a defensive partner, like a defensive defenseman, I, I think is like passe. In fact, when you play him with a puck mover, whether it's Heronic or or even Ethan Bear, you unlock more of that zone time, more of that sort of time with the puck, more touches for Quinn Hughes to do Quinn Hughes magic. And and it changes sort of the the trajectory of what this team looks like at the top end of their lineup. There's sort of a downside to this, though, right? In that, obviously, it's a major strength of the team, and it's gone a long way toward addressing that fatal flaw of can this team move the puck from the back end well enough? But it's really dependent on the health of these two guys, right? Like, the Canucks don't have a ton of puck-moving options outside of these two guys. It's sort of one thing that I've kind of been thinking in my head is if during a playoff run... You have to play a crucial game without one of your top pair guys. Do you have, you know, not that you're ever going to replace guys of that caliber, but do you have enough push from the back end? Do you have answers? Can you can you pair someone with Quinn and still get, you know, if not the heroic impact on his game, at least the bear impact on his game? And, and you know, I don't know the answer to that. So I like, especially given the, the lead that this team has padded atop the Pacific Division and, you know, they're, they're likely to make in the playoffs. I like taking the opportunity to experiment because one thing you might want to need you might need to do you might want to do ahead of the deadline is find one of those you know Eric Gustafson would be like the highest end version of it but you know an, an Eric Brandstrom like just another puck moving guy to offer you some insurance in the event that this team is going to play 30 more games at the conclusion of the regular season, which is a possibility we can no longer ignore, right? With Which this management group is going to prepare themselves for and should. Um, so I'm curious to see what this experiment looks like. I think it makes sense to try. I think it makes sense for this club to take a look 
at other options on Quinn Hughes's right side, not to mention that I'm really curious to see what Hironic can do driving his own pair as sort of a primary puck handler, puck mover. Playoff forecast, Canucks 100% likely to make the playoffs according to Dom LeCision's model at The Athletic. It's not quite the small little clinched X beside their name, but they are one of four teams in the league to be at 100%. The Avalanche, the Bruins, the Jets are the other three. So that's great company. The club's odds of winning the Pacific Division also now up to 58%. My goodness. You could have bought that at 12 to 1 before the season. Uh, Their biggest competitor, by the way, incredibly, isn't the Los Angeles Kings or the Vegas Golden Knights, but it's the Edmonton Oilers who check in at a 20% shot of winning the Pacific based largely on their underlying form and the stunning 13-game win streak they've strewn across the past several weeks. Canucks, gambling odds. The over-unders set at six, which is really a bet against the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, Canucks have been at six and a half in almost all their games of late. You can get them at six today. And they're minus 450 home favorites on the money line against this moribund Blackhawks side. That's incredible. Minus 450, that is the most that this team has been favored in a game this season, and I would wager you could go back years, like eight years maybe, maybe more, before you'd find the Canucks being home favorites this decisively uh, in a single game. I mean, really that's, you know, EPL, NCAA football level favorite for the Canucks Uh, an incredible testament to where this team has gotten to and also to the lack of true obvious NHL talent up and down the Blackhawks roster that's going to do it for the whiteboard that's going to do it for this segment we'll be back on the other side we've got three great guests starting with Brendan Batchelor coming up to you on Canucks talk on Sportsnet 650.